The holidays are just around the corner, and it's time to be thinking about getting those perfect gifts for family, friends, or maybe even for yourself. We have the perfect opportunity for you to take care of that shopping list and support ACB Media at the same time. It's the ACB Media Holiday Auction. Join us on Sunday, November 27th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time, on Zoom or on ACB Media. You can bid on great, unique items like handmade crafts, collectibles, technology, and food including those wonderful baked goods and a whole lot more. If you want to get a jump start on things, the Sneak-A-Peak Appetizer Auction is also back this year on November 25th and 26th. Watch your email for more details or contact Leslie Spoon. Her email address is lesliespoon at cfl.rr.com. We'll see you Sunday, November the 27th at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific at the ACB Media Holiday Auction. Happy bidding! Opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the content creators and should not be assumed to reflect product endorsements or the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Welcome, everyone. Um, my name is Gabriel Lopez Cafati. I'm current president of Blind LGBT Pride International, BPI. Uh, we're a special interest affiliate of the American Council of the Blind. This is our 22nd anniversary of uh, being part of the ACB family and uh, we keep growing strong and proud. Um, BPI is uh, an organization that prides on representing the intersectionality of those of us who are blind or low vision members of the LGBTQ plus community and uh, we are happy to say that we are a very unique organization uh, we're growing, we're strong, not only in members who identify as part of the LGBTQ community, but we have strong allies, as you will experience tonight. Um, the uh, work of BPI is mainly advocacy, but we also engage in a lot of fun and social activities. Uh, we are famous in the ACB world during conventions for a host of events, both educational and entertainment. Uh, we have wine tastings, we have advocacy, we have uh, dating, uh, a little bit of everything, wellness, and uh, we always try to keep things fun and uh, respectful while we mingle and learn together. Uh, the only thing that is not welcome in BPI is judgment. So BPI, uh, we make sure to keep it a judgment-free zone. Come as you are. We welcome everyone, whatever or wherever your color of the rainbow is. Uh, tonight, we're very excited because this is the first of a four-segment program that we have been working on. Uh, I won't go much into the details because I want to let the master brain or the master brains behind this whole whole program uh, to introduce it for themselves. Um, an ally and a very, very dear friend of ours, another Floridian, uh, Debbie Grubb has been collaborating with Anthony and myself and Mr. Eric Marcus, who she will introduce in a minute. Um, to talk a little bit about, uh, as you all saw, the program 
name Making Gay History. That's the name of Eric Marcus's podcast. Very, very well done, very famous, very well researched and uh, a, a, a complete institution. And uh, uh, Debbie noticed a lot of the similarities between the advocacy that the LGBT movement started engaging in since the 1960s and where we are right now. And uh, Debbie was telling us, you know, how, how much we could use from the examples of the LGBT movement to own advocacy efforts. So without further ado, I'm going to let Debbie talk about the idea and subsequently introduce our very friend and very, very special guest and collaborator, Eric Marcus. Hello, everyone. You know, I think that when we meet people as children, it cuts down to the heart and gets away from people being afraid of, quote, differences, unquote, whether it be color of skin or lifestyle choice. And from the time of my childhood, I had so many. I went to school with wonderful little African-American children. but I didn't think of them like that. They were my friends. We played together. We went to school together. When we, when we got our first crushes on a boy, the girls, we cried together or laughed together. And also, I don't know why, it must have been, I, I don't know, but I have been blessed with so many wonderful friends who were and are lesbian and gay since my childhood. And so when I began to study this history and I saw what people of color had gone through and then what my gay and lesbian friends had gone through who, who I recognized as people that I knew, people that I'd hugged, people that loved me and that I loved back. It got to me in a very special way. And when I listened to Eric's podcast rebroadcast of the, his interview with people from the, um, the beginning of the movement in, in 1969. Um, I, with, with the Stonewall in business, which he will talk to you about in some detail, I didn't even know then that Anthony and Gabriel knew him. And I just called him up and I said, I've read some history and I've listened to the Stonewall thing and we've got, we've got to present this to our own community, because there is so much we can learn. I was so enthralled by how in the beginning of the movement, when a picture or a mention could cost a person their jobs, when people who chose the lifestyle that was best for them were considered mentally ill, unworthy of employment. I, I just, and I thought about the people that I cared so much about. And I said, we can learn from these valiant people who imperfect as are we all and flawed as are we all gave it their best shot. And as I said in the write-up, built a bridge that they are still marching on to find their own place of equality and recognition in American society so that they too, as, as should we all, can can recognize and, and, and try hard to find their own unique vision 
of the American dream. And, and so many have. And so I was just so thrilled. And I said, do you think we can get Marcus little knowing how popular and famous he was? And, you know, I just figured you ask, it's, it's better to ask, you know, and, and say no than not to ask at all. So after that podcast that I listened to with Marcus, I felt like I knew him and I wanted, I wanted him to, to speak with you and, and for you to hear some of the voices that made such a phenomenal difference, not only in their own community, but for all of us. And so it is my great, great pleasure and honor to present to you the author of the wonderful book, which we're now going to begin a, a campaign to get on our own Bard site, Making Gay History, and the podcast of the same name, a good friend to all of us and a, and a person who has given so much and risked it all for the cause. So Eric, take it away. We are so honored and thrilled to have you among us. Thank you, Debbie. I'm delighted to be with you. And thank you, Gabriel. And thank you, Anthony, and all of your colleagues for inviting me to join you tonight. So what I'm going to do is, is uh, share with you some clips from my archive drawn from the Making Gay History podcast. Um, examples of what I call troublemakers, people who made good trouble, who didn't like what they saw or what they experienced and decided to challenge it in, in the context of how they were harmed or in the context of how they wished the world would be different for them. So, um, but before I do, I wanna tell you how the project came about in the first place, uh, how the Making Gay History podcast came about. Originally, I was commissioned to write a book on what was then called the Gay and Lesbian Civil Rights Movement back in 1988. I was commissioned by an editor at Harper and Row, uh, which is now Harper Collins, when I was working at CBS News. Um, and I ha had to make a decision. Was I gonna leave CBS where I was a segment producer and up for a four-year contract, or was I gonna work on this book project? And at the time at CBS, I really wanted to be an on-camera uh, correspondent, but I was already out of the closet. I had done a book prior to my history book called The Male Couple's Guide to Living Together. And I'd been out since college and there was no going back for me, uh, but I knew that there was nobody on camera on any of the national news programs uh, on cable or network. And so I asked one of the senior executives at CBS News who was responsible for hiring correspondents, whether or not they would ever at CBS News put an openly gay person on camera. Um, I didn't wanna go, I wasn't planning to go on camera as a, as a gay correspondent. I wanted to be a correspondent and I was gay. And after much back and forth, because the senior executive really didn't wanna answer my question, I said, I really need to know for my career, would you ever put an openly gay person on camera? And she said, no. So I left CBS. I took on this uh, uh, history book. I used broadcast quality equipment to record the interviews. I checked with my boss, who I just adored at CBS, a man named Jake Kernis, who had created Morning Edition and Weekend Edition for NPR. And I said, what do your colleagues use to record interviews? Because I thought one day someone might want to mine my archive to do an audio documentary or a scholar who was researching history. And I knew that many of the people I was going to interview had never been interviewed before or had only rarely been interviewed um, and also didn't have long to live necessarily because they were very old um, or because they had AIDS. So fast forward to 2015, um, I was trying to figure out what to do next. And in 2008, I had donated my entire collection, all of my audio recordings, all of my papers, 
my video recordings to the New York Public Library that they agreed to, uh, with the agreement that they digitize my entire collection. Um, so when I called in 2015 to check on the status of the, the digitizing, they had just finished. And what I decided to do with my collection was to um, work with an education nonprofit that develops LGBTQ inclusive resources for teaching American history. And we were going to use short clips from my archive uh, as the basis for lesson plans. That project, very long story, very short, morphed into the Making Gay History podcast, which we launched in uh, actually six years ago in October. Um, expecting to, we were told to expect to have maybe 500 to 1,000 listens for every episode. We've produced about 80 original episodes since then um, over the course of 11 seasons. We've had 5 million episode downloads in 200 countries and territories around the world. And just to give you a comparison between the reach of a book and the reach of a podcast, the original two editions of Making Gay History in hardcover and paperback have sold a total of 35,000 copies. So that compares to Making Gay History's episodes, which have been downloaded 5 million times. So I've had the opportunity with the podcast to share these stories, not in print now, but in the original voices of the people who I interviewed. So I feel like the people I interviewed were not very happy that I presented their stories in print and that they figured out how to get me fired from my job in 2015 with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, which is a whole other story, um, because they wanted me to come back to this work and to share their voices so that I could bring LGBTQ history, LGBTQ history to life in the voices of the people who lived it. So I'm gonna share my screen now and introduce you to some of the people I had the privilege of meeting. And I will set the context for each of them. I'll take you through time as well. We're gonna start with, with a story that's from 1947. Um, but the focus is gonna be on troublemakers, the context of the trouble they made. Um, and I don't know if there'll be direct correlation between their experiences and what people can do now um, uh, at, um, uh, in terms of activism, but there's a lot we can learn and be inspired by uh, from people who lived in the past during some very difficult times and still found a way to change the world. So give me a moment while I share my screen. And the first person I'm going to introduce you to is a woman named Edith Ide. I knew her as Lisa Ben. And if you play word games and play with those letters, you get lesbian. And the reason I interviewed Lisa Ben, Edith Ide, was because I had read about a, a woman who when she was in her 20s, worked at RKO Radio Pictures in Hollywood as a secretary. And her boss had told her that he wanted her to look busy. He wasn't always going to be able to keep her busy, but he didn't want her to read or knit. So she decided in 1947, when there was no such thing as a gay organization of any kind, that she would publish what she called a magazine for lesbians called Vice Versa, America's Gayest Magazine. And this was long before the word gay was used for homosexual people. But the in crowd knew what, what, what gay meant. So in this newsletter, what I call a newsletter, which Edith called a um, magazine, she wrote reviews of movies, of, of poems. She wrote a column called the Whatchama Column. And it was in the Whatchama Column where she talked about her hopes and dreams for the future. And that's what attracted me to uh, want to interview her in the first place. Um, and when I went to interview her in Burbank, California, uh, at her little cottage on her front porch, I found out that she also uh, sang in the gay clubs in the 19, in the lesbian clubs in the 1950s and 60s. 
What happened was when she was a young woman going out to these clubs, in the evening, the owners of the clubs would allow um, the straight guys to come in and stand at the bar and in the back and watch the girls dance, as Edith told me. And the entertainers who were drag queens would make jokes about lesbians playing to the straight men in the back. And Edith did not like that at all. So she decided she was going to do something different. So what she did is she wrote her own music and her own lyrics to her own music. And also she wrote lyrics to popular songs. And she went out and she sold her act to the lesbian clubs in Los Angeles in the 50s and 60s. And so when she told me about this, I said, well, could you sing some of your songs for me? So I recorded about 45 minutes of Edith's, Edith's songs. And the song I'm going to play for you is a special song with special lyrics that she wrote later in life about being a senior citizen. So listen closely to the lyrics. Um, this is not one a song that she played in the clubs, but it's one of my one of my favorites. So this is Edith Ide, 1989, from her front porch in Burbank, California. Hey. You ready to warm up? Yeah, I need to warm up a little bit. <clears throat> I should tune up a little bit first. Hello, young lovers, whatever you are, I hope your problems are few. All you cute butchers lined up at the bar, I've had a love like you. Stay cool, young lovers, and follow your star. Stay cool, be faithful and true. Don't mess around with the opposite sex. It won't do a thing for you. I know what it means to wear customized jeans and go out for a casual cruise. You saunter on by and that glint in your eyes speaks of hope you can never quite lose. Don't cry, young lovers, because I'm alone. I've a stockpile of wild memories. A gay senior citizen all on my own. At least I can do as I please. Senior life has compensations, my friends. And at least I can do as I please. So the person you heard applauding there was, was me, um, an audience of one. Now, for change to happen, you have to be able to imagine it. You have to be able to dream it. And I don't know how Edith managed to dream of a better future for gay and lesbian people in 1947 when she was very much alone and no one even imagined that there would be anything called a, a gay and lesbian rights movement or an LGBTQ civil rights movement. But she dared to dream. And this next clip I'm going to play is where she talks about her column, the Wachima column, where she spoke about her hopes and dreams for the future and recorded those dreams in her magazine, which she then distributed to her friends, which they then shared with their friends. So she had to dream and then she inspired. Here's Edith Ide again. It was just some writing that I wanted to do to get it off my chest. And I was a very lonely person and I could sort of fantasize this way by uh, writing the magazine, you see. And uh, then uh, 
oh, I'd write the, at the end the, the whatchamacallamn, and that was just ideas that happened off the top of my head that I would write about and say, wouldn't it be wonderful if, not fantasize exactly, but imagine imagine about how things might be in the future with us. What were some of the things you imagined? Well, I imagined that perhaps we would have a lot of magazines <laughs> and that perhaps even movies might be made about us. I would hope that someday we would not be looked down on with so much disdain. Well, I think this may be where you, this is the column, it's, uh, this is the article, Here to Stay, September 1947, Volume 1, Number 4. Whether the unsympathetic majority approves or not, it looks as though the third sex is here to stay. With the advancement of psychiatry and related subjects, the world is becoming more and more aware that there are those in our midst who feel no attraction for the opposite sex. Homosexuality is becoming less and less a taboo subject, and although still considered by the general public as contemptible or treated with derision, I venture to predict that there will be a time in the future when gay folk will be accepted as part of regular society. That's pretty bold stuff. Well, I guess it is. I never thought of it as being, uh, being bold at the time. I was just, uh, as I say, I was just sort of fantasizing. But it all has come to pass. I think of Edith as a prophet of the movement because it has all come to pass and more. One of the sad facts of Edith's life is that in her early 90s, she had to uh, uh, be placed in a nursing facility because she couldn't care for herself any longer. And she felt compelled to go back in the closet because she was afraid that if the staff of the nursing facility where she was living knew she was a lesbian, that they wouldn't give her proper care. So we have a dreamer in Edith Ide, someone who could imagine the future. And then we have Frank Kameny. Frank Kameny was a Harvard PhD in astronomy. He worked for the Army Map Service. And then in 1957, he was fired because he was gay. So most people in those days during what's uh, referred to as the Lavender Scare, and I'll do a little bit, uh, first a little background. In 1953, President Eisenhower signed an executive order banning gay people from federal employment. Thousands and thousands of gay people were fired from their jobs. Most of them, virtually all of them, just tried to disappear so that they could have, they could go find another job. Now, Frank was, was, um, uh, fired from his job, but couldn't find another job in his profession. He was essentially blacklisted. So he decided he would fight the federal government um, and change their uh, change what they were doing. I remember him saying to me, um, uh, I don't allow my government to declare war on me. And if they declare war on me, I'll declare war on them. So uh, what Frank did was he wasn't happy with the state of the gay rights movement in those days. Um, it was a very small and fragile movement called the homophile movement. So he started a chapter of his own in 1961 after he had taken his case all the way up to the Supreme Court and was turned down. They wouldn't hear his case. Um, started a group called the, the Madison Society of Washington, D.C. So this is a clip of my interview with Frank Kameny in Washington, D.C. in 1989. Um, I interviewed Frank at his house, in his office, uh, surrounded by files stacked high um, on his file cabinets and dust kitties everywhere. And he addressed me across the, from across his desk as if I were an audience of hundreds instead of just one. So you'll hear me and you'll hear Frank Kameny. What the, what the government essentially did is they turned an intellectual bookish astronomer yeah. into a radical. Thank you for using that word. 
I have had cases over the years that I've handled of meek, mild, unassertive, unaggressive people who just want to go about doing their work and suddenly they are hit hard, they are trampled upon with the hobnailed boots, and suddenly it does exactly that, it radicalizes them, and off they go marching militantly. And case after case after case. So anyway... So by 61, you had become radicalized. Oh, very much so. Very much so. So anyway... Oh boy, they didn't know what they were So doing we founded the organization, and um, now the movement of those days, and I say this next, not critically and not uh, necessarily derogatorily, because it was a very, very, very different era. And we were sick, we were sinners, we were perverts, you have your long litany of uh, pejoratives, there was absolutely nothing whatsoever which anybody heard at any time, anywhere, at all, which was other than negative. Nothing. And so the movement, uh, predictably, in retrospect, uh, responded accordingly, and that was the nature of the movement. So people were frightened they had good reason to be. Well, when I was not only frightened, it was simply a lack of uh, uh, in, uh, intellectual strength. We had to defer to the experts. Oh, you hated that, didn't you? My answer was, we are the experts on ourselves, and we will tell the experts they have nothing to tell us. I can't help but laugh. I remember that interview so well. I was just overwhelmed by Frank. Um, but Frank is what it took. Um, there were so few people who stood up in those days. It was terrifying. You could lose your job. You could be thrown out of your house. Your family might reject you. But Frank had already lost his job. Um, and uh, uh, and had run out of money. And he just decided he was going to fight. Um, and he ultimately won. It took 14 years to get the civil service uh, rules changed uh, so that gay people weren't discriminated against in, in uh, federal employment. There's a wonderful picture of Frank that I love. He was at the signing of an executive order by President Obama in, uh, during his administration. Um, protecting uh, federal employees and providing them with, uh, providing couples with benefits, uh, same-sex couples. And there is Frank in the in the Oval Office, uh, just beaming, uh, meeting the president. So he's an example of citizen, a citizen activist who, who didn't just use himself, he created an organization and amplified his actions by bringing other people along with him. So Frank, along with people like Barbara Giddings and Kayla Husin, organized some of the first protests, public protests by homosexuals, uh, by gay people in front of the White House um, and other federal facilities in 1965. Um, so Frank is one of my heroes. He uh, was, was not the easiest person. Uh, he was also very difficult to interview because he, <laughs> he didn't let me direct the conversation. Uh, he, was, uh, he talked over me. I just gave up at some point and just let him talk. Um, he was extraordinary, extraordinary. So we're going to jump ahead. I'm not going to talk about the Stonewall Uprising, which uh, um, was mentioned earlier in the introduction, um, except to say that it was a key turning point in the movement in 1969 when the police on a routine raid of a gay bar in New York City, which is something they did all the time, not just in New York, but at cities, cities around the country where they arrested gay people and called them off to jail simply for being at a bar um, where there are other gay people. 
Um, that happened on June 28th, 1969 uh, in Greenwich Village at a bar called the Stonewall Inn and gay people fought back that night. And it led to an enormous explosion ultimately in the gay rights movement in terms of organizing. And uh, after 1969, uh, when there were about 40 to 60 gay rights organizations, within the first year, there were several hundred more organizations across the country, many of them at universities um, and colleges, but also in big cities and small cities. One of those organizations was called the Gay Activist Alliance in New York City. And their young president was a man named uh, Morty Manford. And on his 21st birthday, uh, he was at a protest outside um, um, an auditorium at New York University where then Mayor Lindsay, who was running for president, spoke. And uh, the protesters couldn't get inside, but somehow young Morty found himself inside. So he's an example of someone who was involved with an organization that marshaled its uh, efforts to protest things that they felt were wrong in terms of how gay people were treated because the police were still beating up gay people in those days at will. Um, and at this protest, he found himself in a position to make a difference. And at age 21, this is what he did. Somehow or another, I got inside. I, I mean, All by yourself. I mean, you're, you were yeah. the only one to get in. Yeah. What, maybe a thousand people sitting in the audience and, and the mayor was up at the podium talking. Well, there I was. What was I going to do? It was just me. So naturally, I did what anyone else would do. I walked onto the stage and I took the podium away from John Lindsay. <laughs> <laughs> I walked up right next to him. And I uh, said, uh, so the audience could hear, the police are brutalizing gay people three blocks away from where we're sitting. Oh, the, and, and the, the police um, harassment and, and attacks were even going on that night. That was one of the points that I made. I wasn't there very long, but what I said made an impression. The police dragged me off the back of the stage and they ejected me through, you know, some, some or another uh, exit. Apparently, after I left, the audience called the mayor to account for what was going on with the police bothering the gay community. And um, apparently, John Lindsay had made a statement that uh, he would permit me to speak. If, if I wonder, of course, he knew darn well the police had already thrown me out, didn't realize that I would come back. <laughs> and I, I, I snuck back in. I mean, I broke through the security lines again. I, I can't tell you how I did it, but I got back in and I came right down that aisle. <laughs> and I could see him looking up from the podium at me. <laughs> you know, biting his lip and saying, oh, shit, here he comes again. And I walked right back up on stage and I said to him, I understand you said I can speak. <laughs> and he said yes, and he yielded the podium to me. And I uh, addressed the audience about the police brutality and, and the harassment we were facing, and I said my piece, I thanked them, and I left as 
surreptitiously as I'd entered. One of the things I love about this interview is you can hear in Morty's voice, he was in his late 30s when I interviewed him, his sort of astonishment at what he did. Um, and I think it's the kind of thing you can do when you're 21 years old, because you don't know that you can't do something. And, uh, and you haven't seen enough of life to lose your sense of outrage. And he was fueled by, um, by his sense of outrage. And it took enormous courage to do what he did. Morty was one of my favorites. We grew up in the, the borough, both grew up in the borough of Queens. Um, his, he and his mom co-founded PFLAG, Parents, Friends, and Families of Lesbians and Gays. The name is slightly different now. Um, they founded the organization nearly 50 years ago. Um, Morty didn't live long enough to see, the, uh, see his story in my book. He died uh, in May of 1992. If I remember correctly, he was 41 years old. He died of AIDS. So next I'm gonna introduce you to two of the uh, remarkable women who probably were responsible for some of the biggest changes in terms of, the, uh, uh, of how gay people were perceived. Barbara Giddings and Kay Lahusen, along with Frank Kameny, organized those original protests in the mid-1960s in front of the White House. Um, they also were very engaged in getting homosexuality removed from the list of mental illnesses in 1973. And what was so important about that was that before that, gay people were considered mentally ill. Now, you can't hire a teacher who's mentally ill. You can't be a lawyer if you're mentally ill. Um, how could you be a doctor? So there was an enormous burden on gay people before, uh, they, before homosexuality was removed from the list of mental illnesses in the DSM. Um, but what I loved about Barbara and Kay was their sense of humor and how they used humor um, as a tool in, in raising consciousness and making change. So one of the things that they were very interested in, Barbara in particular, was books and the American Library Association, because Barbara found her, first found herself in a book called The Well of Loneliness. It's a, a, um, a romance novel, a lesbian romance novel written in the 1920s. And Barbara recognized herself in the book. That's how she understood uh, her sexuality. And she, she felt that it was important for people to know about all of the positive gay books that had been published up to that point in 1971, when she and Kay um, rented a table on the convention floor at the American Library Association convention um, in Dallas. Now we've all been to conventions um, and convention floors have multiple booths. Usually there are curtains and you decorate the curtains and they prepared a bibliography that filled two, legal si uh, two sides of a legal size sheet of paper. There weren't a lot of positive uh, gay books in those days. And they made lots of copies. They distributed them throughout the convention center. They taped them to uh, columns. They taped them to the elevators and they had stacks of them um, at their table on the at the convention floor. And nobody was interested at all. So on the fly, they figured out how to get some attention because what was really important then was visibility. Most people had never met a homosexual. They thought that gay people lived under rocks. And the way that they thought change would happen was in no small part to make gay people and the issues that affected them visible. So this is what Barbara Giddings and Kayla Husen did in 1971 at the American Library Association convention in Dallas on the convention floor with their booth to get some attention. 
Well, we decided to bypass books and show gay love live. So we called it Hug a Homosexual. And we stripped it down to the bare gray curtains, and we had a sign up men only at one end and women only at the other. And we stationed ourselves, same sex all four kisses. of us, under the signs to give free, mind you, free same sex kisses and hugs. Well, let me tell you, the aisles were jammed, but nobody came into the booth. <laughs> And Life Magazine was there. Life that Magazine was the photographer was there. Two da Dallas television stations had sent camera crews. <laughs> right, the and lights were going on. And I think people were rather intimidated. Yes, the lights were on, and all these people jammed in the aisles, craning their necks to see the action, but nobody wanted to take part. So we did the action. We kissed and embraced each other for two hours. We handed out copies of the bibliography. <laughs> we called out encouragement. We kissed and hugged each other some more. Alma Routsong was an absolute peach. She and I were on the female end, and a couple of the men were on the other, and we did all this ourselves. We ha that really put so us on the map. So there we were on the 6 o'clock news, and the library and people again, were livid. They said, nope. we have all these famous authors here, and all they cover is this kissing booth. <laughs> they put us on the 6 o'clock news. They put us again on the 11 o'clock news, and again the next morning. This was news. <laughs> the, lo the local rules. Yes. <laughs> Dallas. Dallas. <laughs> Dallas. It was wonderful. And it really, it, our spirits soared because we, you know, really the booth also had uh, a message that was useful in any arena, and that is that gay people are not willing anymore to be subject to a special double standard. If we, we, are, we should have the same right to express our affection publicly as heterosexuals have. No more, but no less. I just adored Barbara and Kay. Um, I stayed in touch with them in the years after um, I interviewed them. And uh, they moved into a retirement community in uh, Pennsylvania, just outside of, of Delaware. And I went with my producer to visit Kay uh, several years ago uh, after Barbara had died. And Kay told us about how, and I love this, she started a gay table at her retirement community. So that her activism, which was once nationally oriented, was now focused on where she was living. And so of course, Sarah Birmingham and I had to go to the retirement community for dinner. We invited ourselves uh, to the gay table and we did a special episode, a bonus episode called Kayla Husen's Gay Table. Um, uh, and, um, it was just incredible to be with all of these people who had made some contributions in some way to making gay history. Uh, in fact, I asked each of them to, to complete the phrase, I made gay history when? Um, and each of them had done something in their lives to, to move the ball forward. Now I'd like to introduce you to Deborah Johnson and Zandra Rolana Motto, um, examples of, of other citizen activists. They, this is in 1983 and by 1983, um, gay rights laws had been passed in cities and states across the country, including in Los Angeles. So when Deborah Johnson and Zandra Rolan went to dinner, uh, uh, well, they went for what was supposed to be a romantic dinner at a restaurant called the Papa Shoe, um, where they had these romantic booths for couples, they were refused service. Um, and well, here's what happened. This is uh, Deborah Johnson and Zandra Rolan Amato in 1989, telling me about their night at the Papa Shoe restaurant. At the time I was working on Saturdays. So this was the first weekend that we were gonna have a complete weekend together uh, since we had gotten together. It was also the year right before Martin Luther King's birthday was made into a holiday. 
And a friend of mine told me about this restaurant that was really nice, and the restaurant had these six booths on one side that were real romantic. And we got there, and the, um, the waiter kind of questioned us about, are you sure you want the booths? And we told him yes. And it's the type of booths where you have to move the table out so that you can get in. It's like a horseshoe. And in the middle of the horseshoe was like a fountain. And there was a guy with a, a violinist who came around. And, and the boot, right in front of the, of the table was a little white sheer curtain that closed in the candlelight. And it was just romantic. Did it occur to you that, there, that this might be a problem? Not at all. I mean, to me, discrimination never enters my mind first. Huh ever. So they showed us to our table, we sit down, and we're taking our jackets off, and this tall, humongous guy comes by and, and yanked the table away and told us, you know, you know, so sorry, you know, but you can't sit here. It's against, it's the, against law the law and, you know, to serve two, two men, or, men or two women in these booths. You know, and we asked for the, to see the manager. And we weren't going to move. The guy that uh, turned out to be the real maitre d' kept giving us the, you know, the back of the bus type of thing, you know, where you can sit over there and you can sit over here and you'll have free drinks and the whole thing, but you will not, you cannot sit here, you will not be served here. And kept insisting that it was against the law, it was against the law. And you know, that, that really, oh, it makes me crazy thinking about it. You know, it made me more mad. So you got to remember, we were there about Martin Luther King's birthday, and then we were going to take it off the next day as this real show of solidarity and its importance in the whole bit. And if there's anything the King had taught us, it was that we could sit anywhere in the restaurant we wanted to sit. So Deborah Johnson and Zandra Alanamata were not in the habit of suing people, but they decided they were not going to put up with this. And they hired an attorney named Gloria Allred, a young attorney who was not yet famous for the civil rights cases and cases regarding women that she take, had, had taken on in later years and won. Um, and they won their case. Uh, and while the case was a very important one, uh, because it upheld a law that had not been tested before in terms of discrimination regarding gay and lesbian people, the owner of the Papa Shoe restaurant decided he was not going to serve same-sex couples. So he called a press conference. He had the romantic booths hauled to the curb, and he announced on this day, romantic dining dies. So in a way similar to what was done in the South when uh, communities were ordered to uh, integrate the swimming pools, but instead of integrating, they closed the pools, Papa Shu, the owner of Papa Shu decided he wasn't gonna serve same-sex couples. But, you, but Deborah and Zandra won their case, and they are among my favorite examples of citizen activists. Another person I'd like to introduce you to is Perry Watkins, and he's another, another citizen activist who really was just trying to go on, uh, go, go on about his life. Um, and first, the Vietnam War got in the way because he was drafted in 1968, the age of 18. He was studying um, uh, dance in Germany and was called home to Tacoma, Washington, uh, where he went to the Army Induction Center because he was drafted. And he filled out the form that, that included a question that asked if you had homosexual tendencies. And this was uh, at a time when the military didn't take gay people. And Perry Watkins checked off the box that said he was gay and fully expected to be on a plane back to Germany so he could continue with his, his uh, studies. But they took him. Um, and he wondered in the interview whether they took him because he was black, thinking that he would come home in a body bag. Because he said, I wonder how many black men who were gay were taken 
even though the military said they wouldn't take gay people because they expected them to be killed. I have no idea. And that's a great uh, uh, research project for a graduate student. So Perry was drafted. He spent 15 years in the military. He had a very successful career. They knew all along that he was gay. He even performed drag in his alter ego character named Simone. Then after 15 years, he was thrown out of the military because he was gay, even though he had a stellar career. And he decided he would sue. Um, and at the time I interviewed him, it was eight years into his case. Because he was uh, discharged, he got a dishonorable discharge. He got no benefits at all. He had trouble finding work. He lost his home. It was foreclosed. He was living in a rental house. He couldn't afford to pay for heat. So we sat in our coats uh, during the interview and I felt guilty. My batteries had run low and I needed to plug in my tape recorder. And I felt bad that I was using his electricity. So um, I couldn't quite believe that, that Perry had filled out the form, checked the box, and they still took him. And this is the point in the interview, in this clip that I'm gonna play for you, where he is saying, where he's trying to convince me because I can't quite believe it. Here's Perry Watkins in 1989. I was not trying to go into the military. That's why I told them I was, that's why I find it absolutely ludicrous that the army is in court saying, we don't want this man. Well, why the hell did you take me? Right. And why am I the one that is being accused of being at fault? It is amazing. But no, I checked the block. Yes. They sent me into a psychiatrist mm -hmm. who said to me, why did you check this block? Yes. And I went, because you asked me to fill the form out honestly. Well, do you object to going in the military? No, I didn't want to go in the military. Who did? Right. But I certainly had no objection to serving my country. And you were raised to be honest. Extremely so. Why I really checked the box was because I thought, if I go into the military, I'm not going to hide the fact that I'm gay. I know myself well enough to know that. So when I get thrown out, mom will be angry if I lie. Mm. That was why I checked the box. When I get put out of the military, mom will be more angry with me for lying than why didn't I just tell the damn truth to begin with. Mm -hmm. Perry ultimately won his case. He was one of the first people to be reinstated in the military. He decided to take a settlement and left the military. He was the Grand Marshal in uh, the New York City Gay Pride March in 1993 um, and then died of AIDS in 1996, if I remember correctly which I think is why his story is largely forgotten. But another example of someone who, uh, whose life was turned upside down and he decided that he would not stand for it. So um, every movement needs its allies and uh, the parents of PFLAG, Parents and Friends of Lesbians and Gays, uh, was and is a very important organization celebrating its 50th anniversary next year. I mentioned Morty Manford earlier uh, in the presentation who with his mom co-founded PFLAG in 1973, actually their first meeting in 1972. Um, Paulette Goodman uh, was president of PFLAG in the 1980s. And you know, we sometimes wonder how people become allies. What is it about their lives that makes them, if not different, inspires them to try to make change? Now, uh, Paulette had a daughter who was a lesbian, but it was Paulette's early experience as a Jew in occupied Paris during World War II that shaped her feelings about what it means to be different. So here's Paulette Goodman talking about what happened um, uh, during World War II when she was a child and what she observed at home. The next day, my aunt 
went and heard what happened. And well, I actually got ahead of myself. So, um, uh, and didn't explain the context of this. So uh, Paulette's uh, sister was uh, taken away uh, by the Gestapo and, uh, and her husband was taken away too. So her sister and uh, brother-in-law were taken away, but they managed to uh, um, keep their young, uh, uh, the young child, um, Paulette's uh, nephew. And uh, if I remember correctly from this, uh, this, this clip, um, the police then showed up at their door wanting to take the child. The next day, my aunt went and heard what happened. And I don't know why she didn't bring the little boy home. Maybe the concierge wouldn't give him to her. But then my mother sent my sister Gabby to pick up Andre. And as they were walking back towards where we're in our neighborhood, they were followed by the police and the Gestapo. They followed her to our apartment. And she came up with the two French policemen. The Gestapo stayed downstairs. And uh, they told Mrs. Rosenberg, uh, not in Madame Rosenberg, um, you will have to let this little boy go with us because his mother is asking for him. And my mother says, if my daughter did not take the child yesterday, that means she doesn't want him to, to, to be there. And I have brought up nine children and I can bring up a tenth. Please leave me my grandchild. This was her first grandchild. She tore her hair out. She, I mean, she made such a scene. And we were there in the kitchen when that happened. And, you know, I remember everything that happened. And they said, look, you better quiet down and you better let the child go because if you don't, there are those two Gestapo downstairs. They'll come up and they'll take all of you with all the children. So they had no choice. They took my nephew and he was reunited with my sister. Uh, and I think they spent several months uh, in Drancy, which was a camp mm -hmm. right outside of Paris. And, even, and we did get a couple of letters, you know, through the letters over the wall. Uh, we even sent some packages, whatever my mother could get her hold of to, you know, some food uh, in that camp. And then uh, we knew they were sent to Auschwitz and we never heard from them again. So that's the background. Now I know what it's like to be in the closet. I know what it's like to be a minority, to be threatened. Uh, I lost uh, most of our family except for uh, my immediate brothers and sisters. Uh, um, one, my older sister, uh, never came back, but aunts and uncles, uh, cousins, people who, whom I never knew, who lived in Poland, were mm -hmm. all exterminated. So it makes a difference what your life experience is uh, in terms of being an ally. So even if you aren't in this case, Paulette was not gay herself, she certainly knew, as she said, what the experience was like of being different, of being discriminated against. Um, and one of the, the, the important things about allies is they can often go places and speak to people in ways that we cannot. Um, and in the case of parents and friends of lesbians and gays, um, parents with gray hair um, are often uh, heard better than young people. And in those days, in the 80s, certainly, um, 
elected officials were more likely to listen to people like Paulette than they were to listen to young gay people themselves. So I have two more clips to share with you. I'm sorry, I have one more clip to share with you. Um, this is Vito Russo. Um, Vito Russo wrote a book. This is also how change happens. He was a film expert, uh, a film history expert, and he decided to take a look at how gay people were portrayed in films. Because his theory was that public opinion about gay people was shaped by Hollywood through how Hollywood portrayed gay and lesbian people in, in films. Um, I found that book in 1981 on a shelf in an editor's office when I worked as a temp at Harper and Row Publishers, the same publisher that later published my history book. But at the time I was a $3.25 an hour um, clerical person right after college, um, opening envelopes for, in the special sales department and separating checks from order forms. Uh, actually there's three piles. One was for the checks, one was for the order forms and one was for the staples and the uh, paper clips. But it was at that office where I discovered Vito's book, um, which changed how I saw Hollywood and films. And subsequently, Vito co-founded an organization uh, originally called the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, which lobbied Hollywood to change how they portrayed gay people and the things they included in the films. And, uh, and we've seen an enormous shift over the years in how gay people have been portrayed. Vito also co-founded ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. When I interviewed uh, Vito in 1988, he was one of the first people I interviewed and I knew he was ill. Uh, his partner, Jeffrey, had died three years prior and Vito likely didn't have long to live. So in uh, this interview, you'll hear us, in this clip from this interview, you'll hear us talking about legacy, the things we leave behind and the importance of passing on the ball to the next generation. So making change isn't enough. We also have to ensure that we pass the torch and pass along the things we've learned about activism and about change to the next generation. So here's Vito Russo from his uh, home office on West 24th Street and 9th Avenue in December of 1988. And I don't think you'll be able to hear it, um, but he's chain smoked through the whole interview. So you might hear him light a match at some point and take a drag on his cigarette. I find it interesting, from what I know about the, uh, the history of the gay movement, that there always have been and there will always be people who are willing to put their lives on the line for these ideas, starting from Germany in the turn of the century in 1895 around, and then into the early teens and 20s. There were a group of people in Germany, headed by Magnus Hirschfeld, who were willing to put their lives on the line. They were willing to make a movie called Different from the Others, which the Nazis seized and burned. That in the 1940s and the 1950s, there were the Harry Hayes and the Barbara Giddings and the Mattachine Society. And then in the 60s, gay liberation. It's the more radical issues that I think are still gonna be fought over. Whether gay people have a right to adopt children, get married, get married, teach in the public schools, which they do now, you know but be open about it. Right. And those battles are battles that are going to be fought long after you and I are gone. But you have to make a contribution while you're here. I mean, that's been my whole life, is to leave my book behind. That I know after I'm dead, that book is going to be on a shelf someplace, and what I have to say will reach people. And the things I've written, you know, because it's like, what's it, who was the person who said that? 
Pedro Almodovar. He said, the thing is, is you can't regret your life, otherwise why did you live? What was the point of having a life if you didn't say something or do something that was going to survive after you're gone? Mm -hmm. And that's the way I feel about it. I mean, I really feel the reason why I'm here is so that I could leave this book and these articles so that some 16-year-old kid who's going to be a gay activist in the next 10 or 15 years is going to read them and take, carry the ball from there. And that'll happen. Happens with me. Mm -hmm. Harry Hay passed the ball to the Mattachine, and they passed the ball to us. And you'll pass it on. Mm -hmm. Something that Vito didn't know um, was that, actually, let me just pause for a second and talk about the importance of stories. Telling our stories is so important of the struggles that we've experienced, the discrimination we've experienced, so that the next generation can understand the fights that have been fought before them and that they can carry on the fight for the, for the rights that haven't been won yet, for the discrimination that still happens. Um, Vito couldn't have known when he spoke to me in 1988 that the interview that I recorded would one day be included in a podcast episode that was released in the fall of um, 19, I'm sorry, not 19, it's not that long, it's not that long ago, the fall of 2016. And that that uh, audio recording would be heard by a 15-year-old disabled lesbian in Moscow named Mina, who would then write to me to tell me how inspired she was by Vito's story and could she translate his transcript? Um, we provide full transcripts on our website of all the interviews. Could she translate his transcript into Russian and post it on her blog so that people in Russia, other, other gay and lesbian people, uh, could read, his trans, uh, read the transcript while listening to the English language interview so that they could be inspired to take action and to make change the way he did and the way in which she was inspired. Um, I think Vita would be very happy to know that the ball had been passed from him to me and from me to Mina. And now I pass the ball to all of you um, to take your stories forward and to take your battles forward and share it with the next generation and to inspire them to continue the fight. So I'm gonna stop sharing and I'm gonna turn this back to um, Debbie and, um, uh, and her crew and Gabriel and Anthony and I will sit back while they get ready for the next part of this conversation. Well, thank you, Eric, so much. Um, I, I wanna say a couple of things and I definitely have a question for you, but um, first and foremost, I, I'm very lucky to have been, you know, my, the primary place of my growing up was in New York City. So I had the opportunity to experience a lot that around the rest of the country, not so much. You know, I'm in that transition period where the HIV AIDS epidemic was full blown when I was first coming out. And, uh, you know, I had the privilege. I actually met Frank, um, Frank Kennedy. And, and I have to say, you know, just like you said, there was no directing any kind of conversation. He was telling you what he wanted you to know, what he wanted you to pass on, et cetera, et cetera. I never had the privilege of meeting Vito, but I read his book and, you know, I will cop to this on this phone call. The first part of my wanting to read his book was he was cute. He was hot. Um, <laughs> and I wanted to know, <laughs> am I wrong? You are not wrong. And, and, his, and I, I, on our website, we have um, uh, 
the main photo is Vito as a very young man, and I had never seen him as a young man. Um, uh, and he was he was a doll. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, and I wanted to know, you know, how did that, you know, cute young? I, I mean, you know, somebody that he could have been a James Dean. He could have been all of those things. You know, how did he become what he became? So, you know, first and foremost, I, I am so very thankful that I had the opportunity to grow up in New York City. Um, having said all that, I, I recognize from, you know, Debbie coming to us and saying that this could be something that would inspire our community. Um, I recognize, you know, all of the otherism that came along with our community and how the otherism can inspire advocacy in the blind and low vision community. What I want to ask you is in the LGBTQ plus, and, and there's a couple of letters that go on after that. And, and everybody says at some point we're going to encompass the whole rainbow, yes. but there are different tribes, so to speak. Oh, yes. And, you know, in our own tribalism from the LGBTQ, LGBTQ perspective, our tribalism sometimes batters up against each other. Sometimes we don't necessarily agree with or, or accept each other, et cetera, et cetera. But when it comes down to it, we very much came together through a lot of these movements. Um, can you talk to just for a little, just for a tiny bit, how, you know, the tribalism was put aside so that the greater vision of the movement could go forward? Well, that happened in times of crisis. Um, uh, and, and in looking at the, the broad sweep of the movement, I could can see the patterns, um, especially, so for example, uh, um, let's look at the 1970s. There was a lot of progress made in the movement in the early 70s. And, uh, and then people began to splinter. Um, the women split off from the men. Uh, um, uh, minority communities split off from the white gay men. There was all kinds of infighting. And then when there was a backlash in 1977 and the popular singer Anita Bryant launched a campaign called the Save Our Children campaign um, to repeal gay rights laws that had been passed across the country, um, people came together again uh, over that. And then as that waned, um, people, people again started arguing. Uh, and then with the AIDS crisis, people came together again. So. It's, it's through crisis that people in the disparate LGBTQ communities have come together um, as we have to a large degree again, as there's been a rise of anti-gay fervor in this country, particularly against trans people. So um, I, any number of times I've been asked by, by young uh, gay people, um, why can't we get along the way we used to you know, in the movement? And I always say, we never got along. Um, you know, in, in the LGBTQ world, we all have, we're all so different. And it's just a miracle that we have managed to come together in coalitions over time to make change happen. One of the problems uh, uh, that I have seen, um, and I think this is experienced in all minority communities, um, yes. certainly no exp expert, is that people bring their rage with them. You know, we come with yes. all kinds of hurt and people take it out on each other. Um, and that's important to guard against. It's also inevitable. Um, but there are also, you know, there are people who emerge who are wonderful leaders who are able to, to, to navigate their way through. One of those people in the, in the LGBTQ movement 
is Ann Northrup here in New York, who's in her 70s now. And she yeah. has the capacity to bring people together in coalitions. And we have to remind each other, we're not the enemy. You know, we're not the bad people. Um, uh, uh, and that happens a lot these days, um, especially, well, uh, we see it everywhere. Um, so I don't know if I've exactly answered your question, but it's an inevitable part of any movement. You have, and I'm gonna ask you one more and then turn it over to Gabriel and, and Debbie, but sure. you know, in, in putting aside the needs of one niche of the community and coming together and saying, we're gonna fight for everything we need and then we'll drill it down to our individual needs. Do you, do you think that taking that standpoint as the LGBTQ plus community, and when, when it was just LGB, there was even, T wasn't even recognized at that point, but yeah. in, in deciding that to put a, aside our individual concerns for the greater good, do you think that's the key that made the movement as successful as it was? Well, you know, um, I'll give you an example of, of when that was problematic, but um, it was done for st strategic reasons. When there was an effort to get the gay rights bill passed in New York City, um, which an effort began in the early 70s and wasn't uh, achieved until the late 80s. Um, gender identity was stripped out of the bill um, yeah. to get it passed. And uh, people whose issues were around gender identity felt betrayed. And there was a lot of um, upset over that. Um, and the people who argued in favor of stripping it out said, we will come back to this another day when we can get it passed. Um, so, you know, I, I, one can argue that it's important to go for the greater good, even if there are some people who are left behind. It's a very hard thing for the people who are left behind. And I'm glad I've never been in a position where I've had to make those decisions. I'm a journalist. I get to report on these things. I'm not in the thick of it. Um, so it can be very painful as that happens. But people have come together to fight for broader issues, even if they didn't believe in them around the marriage equality issue. There were a lot of people fighting for marriage equality who never wanted to get legally married. Um, there were a lot of people who fought for the rights for people to serve in the military, gay people to serve in the military. Um, and some of those people didn't even believe in the military, but felt that everyone should have that right. So one can make an argument for fighting for the broader issues that can be won now and saving the other battles for a later date. That would be my advice, but it's easy for me to say. Well, well, thank you, Eric. Oh, go ahead, Gabriel. This is your show. <laughs> no, no, go ahead. Okay, well, Anthony. Gabriel. Um, yes, I just, Debbie. I just wanted to make one little point, and it's not a defense of anything. It's just sometimes how the more things change, the more they stay the same. Just some, some little calls that I'd like to remind us of. When our... Um, when our founding documents were being drafted and Thomas Jefferson was writing, there was a big push to say that everyone was equal and to end slavery. And Thomas Jefferson said, and, and he was told, this document will never pass. We have to come back to that. And so it isn't right but if sometimes, I guess what you have to decide is, 
if we don't get a foothold in the door in some way. So I, I think that's very, very apt. And it, it is hard. I mean, I'm very glad that I would never be in a position to say that people who identify differently in terms of their gender would be pushed aside temporarily. But if that hadn't happened, would we be where we are now? And for example, with, with BPI, where there's gonna be a, a lot of push to work on this initiative. So it's, it's very hard. Sometimes we want it all. And the other thing I wanted to say was, it is amazing how in all of these communities where we are minorities and we face some of the very same things, there is a learning process. I was involved in ACB 22 years ago when the BPI, which was then known as BFLAG, was brought, wanted to become an, a, a special interest affiliate of the American Council of the Blind. And there was a great divide among the board. And people that I had thought were meaningful people were saying awful things. And I am proud to say that I was on the side of adopting, giving BFLAG a charter and a place in the organization, but even among people who were seasoned advocates. So sometimes a need to survive makes you do things that you wouldn't do. And so, um, Mark, uh, Eric, I was just curious to know if you would like to share a couple of anecdotes or things that you might know uh, as, as we're dealing with this, this process of inclusion when sometimes it can't happen all at once and how you all dealt with it and are there still scars and that kind of thing? Well, I think- a great question. Yeah, I think inevitably there are still scars um, because no one likes to be told to be patient when it's their rights that are on the line. Yeah. Um, and you know, the, the, the activists of the 1960s were, uh, in the gay movement were very unnerved by the young radicals of the early 70s who were not patient. And they arrived in the world where uh, they expected certain rights. I think of myself in that way as well. I left for college in 1976 and uh, was pretty much out by the end of my first semester. And I just assumed I would have a life where I could be myself. I worked for the head of the art slide library in my work study job, who was in his forties at the time. And he was terrified of people like me and my, my classmates who were out because he grew up in a world where he couldn't possibly have been out and gotten his job. The a new president of the college was a lesbian who was closeted. The Dean of admissions was gay and closeted. And they were very threatened by the young people at school who were demanding um, that we have a say in things, uh, the gay and lesbian students, because they grew up in a, in a very different world. So, um, but patience is important, but so is, um, is pushing forward. But also for, for younger activists to have an understanding of what older people have fought for. That's why it's so important for people to be educated about history and to have respect and understanding of those who came before them um, and to learn because, you know, at least in the world that I've, I've worked in and reported on, there's a lot to be learned from the older activists and the tactics that they used and the tactics that worked and the tactics that did not work. Um, there's a world of wisdom and we don't have to reinvent the wheel with every generation. Before Gabriel speaks, if I can just speak to that for a second, I, I'm so glad that you picked the clips that you picked for tonight. 
because you know most of them were out of the box ideas at the time that that they presented them or they tried yes. them yeah and and that's something you know I, i'm gonna ride the the big pink polka dotted elephant right into the middle of the room i think that's something that is so fearful in our blind and low vision community we're afraid to go outside of the box and i'm hoping that by listening to tonight's program folks will will get the idea that you know what it's okay to go out of the box and if it doesn't work god bless but when it does work it'll push us forward it'll do something for us it'll give us recognition and it will take us to the places we need to go yeah i can tell you that there were people who were appalled in the 1960s about the gay people who were appalled by the public protests. They were terrified that the people who were doing the public protests would spoil it for them. Um, but you're right, you know, you can't know that something won't work until you try it. Um, and not everything does work, but, but sometimes things do. Eric, uh, I agree with Anthony and uh, I love both Anthony's and Debbie's questions. Before I, I, more than questions, I have some reflections to share with everyone, but I want to uh, also uh, be mindful of time and, and, and the participation of our folks. We only have a few more minutes left. Is this supposed to be over at 9.15? No, 9.30. 9.30. Okay. My form was wrong. I do apologize. No, no then problem. Then we have about 20 minutes. 20 minutes. And do we have any hands? Not currently. Okay. Um, Herbie, how about Clubhouse? Because we are being broadcast via um, both ACB and Media. And let's remind folks that are listening Clubhouse out there. As well. Yeah, if you're out there listening and you have a question or a valid point of discussion, please join us. You can find the link on the ACB Media, uh, the ACB Facebook community page as well as all of the ACB lists. So if you want to join us, please come in and raise your hand. Go ahead, Gabe. And currently we do not have any raised hands in Clubhouse. Okay, thanks. I'm also, I'm very good at asking myself questions. So if you'd like me to ask myself <laughs> questions, I'm happy to do that. Absolutely. I will uh, let you do that. I'm just going to throw throw in a, a couple of uh, kind of teasers, teasers that I that I came to to you know, to create as you, as you were presenting, sure. uh, because I, I just, and this is, and this is, I think going to also be, uh, I hope very enriching for you in terms of seeing the comparison and, and seeing the work of this brilliant idea that came to fruition between the, the advocacy, um, of someone like Debbie Grubb and the advocacy on different communities that you have been doing and that you have been collecting from other advocates. So first that jumped right in front of my brain was um, when uh, you shared a clip, uh, I think it was Edie. Um, oh, Edith, at least, Edith, Edith Eyed. Yeah. Lisa Ben, oh, okay. yes. Yes, yes. Lisa Ben, who, who had said, uh, you know, I cannot believe that we will ever have our own magazines and our own movies. Um, well, you know, that immediately rang a bell. And for people out there listening, uh, if you want to comment, please, or, or, or ask a question, please uh, agree or disagree with me. 
it rang a bell in terms of our own community. Uh, back in the day, let's talk about, you know, Helen Keller and how uh, a pioneer, what a pioneer she was. And then now we have entire magazines, entire, an entire portion of the National Library Services dedicated to us. We have audio description and movies and TV shows and all that stuff being even codified into legislation. Um, the next part that also jumped at me uh, was uh, when you were talking about uh, a lot of complaints and lawsuits that were filed under the Department of Justice, under the civil rights, and uh, that went nowhere, but, you know, created a precedent, created, a, the, the, you know, pioneered the way for other complaints to be heard in subsequent years. Um, the one that I really, really, really love is when you uh, also said, uh, no, 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 you, I, I forgot his name. I'm sorry, all, all, all the wonderful names. Uh, the gentleman who had said, we are the experts, ask yes, us. Yes, I, I specifically chose that, uh, that clip because so often people try to speak for us. And um, in those days, the experts did. No one listened to gay people, but Frank said, enough of that. You know, I won't, we'll speak for right, ourselves, yes. you know. Yeah. And that's happening for us right now. It's happening to us and it happens all the time. And actually, we yep. have our own version of that, uh, Eric. And we always tell nothing about us without us. Uh-huh. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Gabriel, could I ask Eric another question if it's not a hand Absolutely, up? Debbie. Eric, you have been through such a journey from a young gay man who came out and who had to change careers and all of this and all the amazing people that you have interviewed and thank God you have and saved them for us and for the generations to come. And I'm so thankful that all that's digitized. I'd like to know if you could describe your own personal journey and how it has changed you and what you have learned from it as you've made this very unique, wonderful journey as a gay man, but standing apart reporting. And so I just think that's so amazing. So could you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. Great sure. question, Debbie. Yeah, my major in college was in urban studies. I was interested in architecture and urban planning. Um, and uh, I, I got sidetracked. Well, first I, I wanted to go into school for journalism because um, I decided I didn't want to be an architect after all because I worked for an architect and I thought it was boring. And I also realized I wasn't talented um, and decided that I actually liked writing better. And uh, But what being gay offered me was that as I started writing first about architecture and cities and I didn't feel passionately about it. Um, but what I wound up feeling passionately about was the fact that I lived in a world where people didn't like people like me and discriminated against people like me. And I also, I was curious about how to find my way in life. Um, and a lot of my career has been accidental. So for example, um, I was at dinner in 1985 with my then partner, my first partner and another young couple. And it was during the AIDS crisis. And we were talking about how to get life insurance and who does the dishes. You know, if you're a same gender couple, someone's got to do the dishes. And it's not necessarily the one who's more feminine. Um, who takes out the garbage, all of those regular everyday things. And I said, yeah, I wonder if there's a book out there for, um, for male couples. 
And um, one of the guys at the table said, um, I, I don't know if there is, but if there isn't, I know people in publishing and let me know. Um, and long story short, that's how the male couple's guide to living together was born. Um, so much of my career, so much of what I've learned about life is that it's, it's accidental. And it's, um, I'm gonna quote the, the uh, speaker we had at, at my graduation from my second degree, which was in real estate development when I was 44 years old, I went back to school. Um, and this was a real estate developer who said, um, luck is being prepared when opportunity falls in your lap. And so much mm. of my life has been that. Um, I actually thought that being gay would, would probably ruin my life. Um, I was warned when I was in graduate school at journalism school that being gay, that being out would ruin my career. Um, and I might very well have. It certainly changed the direction of my career. And it turns out now in the la this last stage of my career that it has made my career. Um, I've had a really exciting career and all kinds of opportunities because I'm gay and because I chose not to be in the closet. And in part, I don't, you know, people have said to me, you know, you're brave to be out when you were so young. I was a terrible liar and I hated lying. And um, I wanted to live like everybody else. I wanted a partner. I wanted to be married. I wanted a home. And miraculously, I, I've had a partner for the last uh, nearly 30 years. Um, we have a home. We didn't have children. Um, most gay men didn't do that way back when. Um, and I've had a very good life and even came out to my grandmother who embraced my partner like a grandson. So um, I'll just quote my mother as <laughs> the last part of this answer. My mother said, um, if people, if kids don't come out to their parents, they don't give their, their parents a chance to grow. And I think it's the true, it's true about society in general. If gay and lesbian people had not made themselves known and shared their lives, um, we would not have given people in society, people around us, the chance to grow and learn. Um, I think that that's happening now when it comes to trans people, because so few people know trans people uh, personally, that as we get to know trans people, we understand better about them. And um, I, I certainly don't know what that experience is like in the sight impaired community, but I wonder if some, some of, 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 of um, if there are issues around the fact that a lot of people don't uh, know sight impaired people or are not familiar with them um, or have experiences I do with my partner who's had nine eye surgeries because of two detached retinas, one relapse and glaucoma and all the rest, um, that you know, as we get older, especially, a lot of people wind up having experience with sight impairment. Um, but I don't pretend to know anything about, about the issues that, that you have faced um, in your community. Well, you definitely share the advocacy side of things with us. Um, and, and, and yes, uh, there, there are a lot of similarities from what you just said, Eric, because uh, many times uh, our families grow from uh, letting us be, allowing us to be independent because sometimes they want to protect us or right. shelter us. Right. And, um, and then... Uh, when they realize that uh, that we are equally capable and that we'll, we just need the opportunity to find a way to adapt things to our own needs, uh, they, they, they grow themselves and they, and they understand that, that we are not uh, that we are not needing care, that we are self-sufficient, independent, 
that we travel and that we want the same things that everyone else wants. And, and it sounds like exactly what you just said about uh, being uh, an out gay person. Well, it's interesting, the parallel I'm hearing from you is, and, and I'm coming to understand, is that you grow up generally with parents who can see and you have to wind up explaining yourself to your parents. They can't share the history of the uh, uh, fight for rights for people who are sight impaired because they don't know it. And for, for me as a gay person, I grew up with a straight mother, um, knew nothing about gay people. I had to teach my family about about who I was and what my needs were. Um, and that can be very frustrating sometimes, but it's also, yes, 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 yes. but I also, I, I see it as my role, you know, and you're not gonna change the world unless you can change it one-on-one -on -one with the people who are closest to you. And that's <laughs> So I have to, I'm sorry, Eric. No, no, you go ahead. Uh, so I have to definitely take opportunity of this golden moment uh, to, to, to ask, not you, but to ask a rhetorical question. And this and this is and this goes to <laughs> to make uh, BPI shine as as the gem it is of an organization and a home. Imagine being both blind and LGBT. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. I, Gabe, you know, tell tell your famous Google story because it it really does encapsulate <laughs> what our community, I, our inter intersectional community, goes through. Yeah, well, when I was, uh, I have a degenerative uh, retinal condition, it's hereditary, so I lost my vision gradually. So uh, when I was really, really experiencing uh, the, the, probably the worst part of my sight loss, uh, when it was it's going downhill, there was no stopping it. Um, I, I had recently moved to the U.S. Uh, and started learning how to use a white cane and screen readers and everything. And at the same time, I was coming to terms with I needed to come out because it was, it was killing me. It took me through depression and anxiety and a host, a whole host of, of uh, terrible conditions, uh, both mentally, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. So finally, I said to myself, okay, I, I'm, I have recently let everyone know that this is it, that I'm blind, and, and that there's no going back. Now I'm going to come and tell people that I am gay. So I said, this, this is the kind of thing that only happens to me. I don't think there's anyone else out there in oh. the universe who can be blind and gay at the same time. <laughs> so I Googled. Uh, and that was, I think, the, the Google search that changed my life because I Googled blind gay. And immediately the first result that popped up was uh, BPI, back then uh -huh. B-Flag. That, that moves me to tears. That just that you found a home, you found a community. And that's what we, yeah. we all search for in life is to find people like ourselves. Um, I, I was just writing about meeting the first person I knew who was gay when I was 17 um, and what that experience was like. Um, as far as, as we all need to have community. Absolutely. That's the key word, community. Yeah. And speaking of community, let me do a quick check in with... Uh, Herbie and Chanel to see if we have any hand raised or any interest from uh, questions from Clubhouse. Currently, we do not, and we have a little less than five minutes. And we do uh, not have any questions in Clubhouse either. Okay, so Thank let me ask both. myself a question. Absolutely. Um, so, Go Eric, for it. Eric, what else are you working on? So, um, 
we're currently at the start of a new season of the Making Gay History podcast. Uh, six new episodes drawn from my original archive. We released the first episode last Thursday. Second episode is coming tomorrow. And you can listen to the Making Gay History podcast on whatever platform podcast platform you use, or you can go to the makinggayhistory.com website and listen there. Um, we uh, are also working on a new season of the podcast for next year called Coming of Age During the 1970s, where I uh, share over a period of six episodes um, the, uh, this period of the 1970s, a very important period of the movement against the backdrop of my own coming of age, which was, uh, as messy as the movement was too. I'm also working on a podcast called Those Who Were There, Voices from the Holocaust, which we produce for the Fortunate Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies. You can find it at thosewhowerethere.org, or you can, um, uh, listen to it on whatever podcast platform you use. And that podcast is drawn from the archive of the Fortune, drawn from the Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies at Yale University, which houses mm. 40, 4,100 recorded testimonies of Holocaust survivors and witnesses to the Holocaust. Um, we produce two seasons of 10 episodes each, and we're working on a third season now, focusing on the city of Vilnius in Lithuania, which was a center of Jewish learning. Um, in fact, I'm going to Washington on an early train tomorrow to meet with my producer in Washington so we can map out the six episodes in person together. So that's what I'm working on. You can follow us on all the usual uh, uh, social media platforms. And you can find us at Making Gay History. Wow, so, Eric, if you don't mind thank me, you. If you don't mind me stepping in here, I, I definitely want to encourage every single person listening, whether you're live tonight or you're hearing this on the podcast, please go to makinggayhistory.org and experience just pick an episode at random. I can almost guarantee you that after you listen to one episode, you're going to want more. Yeah, and you'll be captivated. Thank you for saying as, so, Anthony. I just want to say quickly, it's makinggayhistory.com will get you directly to the podcast. Our oh, sorry. Web, yeah, it's our organization website is makinggayhistory.org, but the podcast is makinggayhistory.com. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, and, and rolling this into the fact that this is a, a four, you know, a four presentation series, we're going to be back in December and we're going to dissect, you know, how the voices from out of the box, how the voices who said, no, I, I'm not going to settle for this. I'm not going to accept this. I deserve what everyone else deserves. How those move, you know, those people, those voices moved a whole generation to do extraordinary things. So Eric, I cannot thank you enough for coming back and being a part of this. And hopefully for our fourth episode, when we wrap it all up, you'll come back and be with us. Um, just <laughs> invite Eric, me. I just want to say a personal thank you because this was so important to me and I know how busy you are and it means the world to me as an ally and as a blind person who, has, who wants us to move forward with more verve and spirit and drive. And you have certainly contributed so much this evening. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Debbie and Anthony oh. and Gabriel and, and the rest of the people on the call tonight. It's a, it's a privilege to share this with you. And um, I hope you'll have me back again. Absolutely, Eric. Thank you for your time. It's, you know, like Debbie says, said, we know how busy you keep. Um, we admire and follow all of your, uh, works and all of 
your projects. Uh, just to, um, I just want to close up uh, by thanking everyone who has been listening and to uh, let everyone know to stay tuned because from here, we are going to take uh, pieces and bits uh, of what Eric has presented and probably even more from his other uh, episodes and podcasts to connect with how we can, what we can learn and how we can advocate for our own community. And uh, it's, it's going to be exciting because it's going to be a bridge that's going to bring us and it's going to share lessons learned from the LGBT movement and how we can use them in our own advocacy efforts moving forward. So thank Absolutely. you, everyone. Thanks and to wait, her before you say goodnight, Gabe, before you say goodnight, we're going to invite Eric when his next season premieres to come to our flagship BPI podcast, Pride Connection, which he's done once before. When, yes. when you're ready, Eric, when you're ready to launch, let us know. You have Great. the next episode of Pride Connection <laughs> to you know come and talk about it. Thanks so much. And hopefully we'll it. even have Eric and Schomburg. <laughs> well, thanks everyone. Uh, have a good night. Thanks to the ACB media team for support. And thanks to the entire ACB community. Thanks again, Eric. My Thanks. pleasure. Good night. Blessings, everybody. Thank you.